0: It is 7.08 in the Twin Cities. Uh, our temp has dropped in the past hour, 69, though. Still a very pleasant evening out there in terms of the temperatures. Uh, well, this half hour, we are going to uh, visit with Dr. Brittany Nelson-Chaseman. She is the advisor to the Society of Women Engineers chapter at the University of St. Thomas. Uh, and this is really kind of startling here in 2017, that we still have a problem with women making less than men for the same jobs. Uh, although things are changing, there are some improvement. But uh, we want to talk uh, with Dr. Nelson Cheeseman about this. And uh, she's also an advisor to the Society of Women Engineers chapter at the University of St. Thomas. So, uh, Dr., thank you so much for coming on. And am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let me ask you, what are the stats here? Because I think it's hard to believe that there still are these pay inequities right now.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. So this new research basically looked at a lot of different things from women taking time off in their childbearing years to the difference in pay when either they stayed at jobs or whether they're switching jobs. And so one of the key findings was was that women are more likely than men to take lower paying jobs in retail and service industries. So that decision alone actually is contributing to about one third of the widening gender gap. So, really, if more women can start thinking about maybe pursuing careers in higher-paying careers uh, in a lot of these male-dominated fields, so such as um, you know the STEM or science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, really, that's going to potentially help to start closing that gender pay gap.
0: Well, although I will say, and I want to get to that in a bit because I think I, from what I've talked to, you know, people I know whose kids have graduated from college. If you want to get a high-paying job, kids, families, um, study engineering. Obviously, it's a very difficult and challenging field, but they get snapped up pretty quickly. Yep. But, but, but l- let, let me ask you this, though. Um, are women – and you, you mentioned you know that that's a lot of women obviously take time off if they can, uh, if they're in the workforce, to have a child. Women are actually getting penalized for that? In other words, if they take like a year or two off and then get back in?
2: Well, the study, uh, there were some interesting results in the studies where they actually saw that the women who were not married, so they haven't specifically looked at children specifically yet. That's actually one of their next things they're going to be looking at. But for the non-married females, college-educated females versus the married females, they saw that the married females did have a larger pay gap than the non-married females. And so they think that is from actually things like two-body problems, if you're familiar with that term, that basically is when you have you know, two career, um, you know, breadwinners and you have to kind of figure out how to make that work. And oftentimes the primary career ends up uh, being the one that then, you know, the family follows. And then that sometimes often that's the husband, um, unfortunately. And so often then that ends up taking uh, kind of a cut out of the wife's uh, salary and career.
0: All right. In terms of and you're saying the gender gap, gender gap actually grows as we get older. Is that part of what you're talking about? Explain that to me.
2: Yeah. And so, I mean, it's it's growing as you get older, both for what they found was they looked actually at uh, male and females who stayed at a company and went up, you know, through the years at that same company. And they saw a huge uh, gap between male and female in that respect. But then they also saw...
0: Hang on just one sec. So you're saying that if, if a male and female stay at the same company?
2: You stay at their, yes. Yeah. So so if they are staying at the same company over, you know, 10 years or 15 years, that it turns out that the male at that company or who's staying at his company is often, his pay is increasing at a faster rate than the female who's staying at her company. Yikes.
0: And, and why is that?
2: So, I mean, some of, The studies that have been done talk about um, negotiation skills and that sometimes females aren't as uh, straightforward or proactive about asking for raises or asking for promotions. And so that's one thing that actually, um, you know, a lot of different uh, college campuses are doing across the nation now is actually having negotiating skills, uh, you know, workshops for females to help them make sure that, you know, when they uh, get into that room for negotiating their contract, that, you know, they have the skills available to them. And then also sometimes I think what's really important to think about as well is that, you know, when you negotiate, pay is only one aspect of what you're trying to negotiate for. And so for a lot of females, especially married females, you know, maybe whether they have children or not, you know, again, um, uh, that remains to be seen. But Uh, that often they are looking, maybe not pay is not the most important thing to them that they want to negotiate. They want to negotiate better job flexibility. And so that was another thing that actually one of these studies found was that, uh, certain sectors that seem to have greater job flexibility actually, uh, were, had more females, you know, focusing on those types of sectors.
0: I see. Okay. And so your specialty, obviously, uh, you're advising in the field of engineering. I mean, this is a field where, as I understand it, you know, really employers are out there and they're looking for people who've got the training. I mean, what kinds of jobs are, are people getting even right out of college who have these engineering degrees?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, pretty much there's so many different types of engineering now. It's amazing, right? There's mechanical, electrical, computer, chemical, you know, environmental, civil, all these different things. So pretty much if you look around you, literally, just look around what is around anybody who's listening right now in your room, probably almost all the things around you have been engineered in some way. And so you know, this, there's a huge workforce that then needs to go into designing these things, testing these things, manufacturing these things. And so a lot of those different industries, you know, for all of these different things that we deal with on a daily basis need engineers. And so, uh, you know, certain industries that I think are really attractive to a lot of people, a lot of our graduates go to, for instance, especially being in the Twin Cities, is the biomedical device industry. So we have, you know, a number of companies in the Twin Cities, right? And so um, one thing that I want to highlight, too, is that to, to work at a biomedical device company, you don't need to be a biomedical engineer, which I think is a surprise to a lot of students and parents that I talk to. Uh, They come in saying, oh, well, I'm going to do biomedical engineering because I want to work in the biomed field. Well, it turns out that places like Medtronic actually employ way more mechanical or electrical engineers than they do biomedical engineers or doctors. So, you know, if you want to help people, you don't necessarily need to go into what, you know, on the outside might look like that's the only way to get into helping people.
0: Um, in terms, of, and you're when you talk about engineering, we're, this is different than computer science, right?
2: Yeah. So, at some places, computer science is within the school of engineering. At other places, it's separate.
0: Um, so I hear, I hear that's a good one too. Yep. <laughs> Everybody yep, needs works. an IT person, or or yep. or two, or three, or four, or a whole department. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. Yep. Definitely. So. So, you know, all of these different areas are places that if we have more women, you know, pursuing them, realizing the opportunities that are there, and also realizing that uh, there are ways that you can actually help people through these professions, um, that that can be ways of closing the gender pay gap. But I think because one of the things that I think why some girls and women don't go into things like engineering or computer science is they say, oh, those are, you know, places where people aren't really working with people or they aren't helping people. So an example is here, if you ask a a young person to draw a picture of a nurse or a teacher or a doctor, you know, in that picture, they often are drawing that nurse, you know, doctor or teacher with somebody else, helping somebody else, right? Whereas if you ask a young kid to draw a picture of an engineer, oftentimes there's no other person in the picture. And they don't realize, and I think a lot of the public maybe doesn't realize that we are working with people every single day on teams. I mean, it's a huge, no engineer works all by themselves. And so we're working with people on teams all the time and we're working on things for people all the time. You know, that Medtronic biomedical device, you know, thing was an example, right? And so I think if more, you know, People in general can understand that, but also specifically females who often that's a really important part of their vocation is, you know, I want to do something where I'm helping people. If they realize more of that, I think more women are going to start understanding that engineering and computer science are places that, you know, they might really find a life calling.
0: In terms of, um, you know, women going into engineering, um, you know, for instance, like I know, for instance, at the University of Minnesota, I know that the... uh, engineering school is, is one of the most difficult schools to get into. Mm-hmm. Are, are women, um, young women, applying to these schools on uh, the outset? Are, are they emerging from high school with the right courses? Yeah. I mean, and what courses should you be taking?
2: Yeah, so the courses, you know, of course you want to be taking your basic sciences, so physics, chemistry, biology, in high school in order to really make a strong application when you're applying, you know, for a technical field. Um, But there are, you know, there are uh, schools. So for instance, the University of St. Thomas is one of them where, um, you know, we don't actually have a specific engineering application. We have a, you know, can you get into the University of St. Thomas? And then if you can, we are going to build you into one of our engineers. So, you know, that's something also to think about as well that, you know, uh, think about the school that you want to be at that really is going to help, um, cater, you know, to your interests and to really kind of where you're at and how they're going to make you what you want to be. So that's one thing. Um, oh shoot, I'm sorry. Go on. Well, there, no, but, there, but
0: so so you know, are are I guess where does it start? Is it is it in high school where you know after the basic requirements, you know, that then you can kind of get into the electives or you, you're you're kind of good at something, then you can take like the advanced courses. Are are girls not Taking these kinds of courses is—is is the interest not there, or is it just does it go younger than that? I mean, where, where do you think that this imbalance is occurring?
2: Yeah, so so this is called—we actually call this the leaky pipeline. So um, basically, if you look at fifth and sixth grade girls, fifth grade girls and boys, and you know look at their relative interest in math and science, it's you know the same, but between boys and girls. However, by the time you get to about eighth or ninth grade there's a huge drop in girls' interest in science and math areas. So that's one of the first kind of leaks in the pipeline that we talk about. So there's a lot of outreach efforts directed then at middle school girls trying to really try to keep them interested in science and math and understand why it is that, you know, they're becoming disaffected about this and to help keep them kind of in the pipeline. And then the next leak is often in going from high school to college. And so, you know, at the University of St. Thomas, for instance, we have – you know, we try to address that by basically trying to create a really supportive network for, of course, all of our students, but um, especially also our female engineers. So they have, you know, as you mentioned, uh, this, you know, a chapter of the Society of Women Engineers that we have on campus where basically it's a, munch- a bunch of female engineering students that all get together. You know, a- as you mentioned, I'm the advisor, but pretty much, I mean, they were on the show. It's amazing. They, they, you know, invite uh, engineers in from industry to come talk about, you know, what is it like being an engineer in industry? Well, oftentimes these are female engineer role models. Uh, they go to national conferences, you know, where they're meeting with people from all over the nation and, you know, there's companies interviewing them. Uh, they do outreach activities, you know, to these middle schools or for Girl Scouts or, you know, for high schools. And, and that's a really awesome opportunity, not just you know so I do outreach of course as well as you know a professor but it's really cool to be able to do an outreach activity to a middle school or a high school for girls and show them okay yeah you know there's me as a professor but I also have all these female engineering students that are also pursuing engineering and kind of see it at all these different
0: tiers um, we're chatting with Dr. Brittany Nelson-Cheesman. She is uh, with the uh, University of St. Thomas. Uh, she's an advisor to the Society of Women Engineers. We're talking about sort of the gap between pay and also the gap uh, in terms of the number of, of young women that are going into the engineering field, a field that it can be very lucrative. And where people are hiring and and paying very very well right now, let me ask you: at the University of Saint Thomas, which is obviously a fabulous school here in the Twin Cities, uh, lots of kids from from Minnesota end up there. What you know in the average engineering class, what's the ratio that you're seeing, and has it been pretty steady over the past few years? Has it changed? Uh, what are your numbers?
2: Yeah, so nationally, it's about ten. 10- well, so it actually is very interesting because it actually depends on the engineering discipline, and again, this kind of gets back to that thing of whether people see more clearly see that discipline as helping people often. So, environmental engineering or biomedical engineering actually has pretty high, um, you know, percentages of females, up to maybe forty percent female, whereas uh, mechanical and electrical engineering, which are kind of your, you know, uh, more you know first types of engineering, kind of bread and butter. Oftentimes, nationally, those are around ten to fifteen percent female. Wow! Um, and yeah, it's pretty. And in our in our classes at University of Saint Thomas, unfortunately, um, it's you know around that you know fifteen percent. I would say so. Really? Um, okay. And yeah, Is that, so has it, that
0: been pretty steady? Has it been climbing? Is it down or? Um, it's been pretty
2: steady. Unfortunately, so. Um, I mean, one of the cool things though is at the University of Saint Thomas in our School of Engineering. Um, we actually have a pretty high amount of female faculty members, which is, you know, really creates an awesome, you know, environment for the faculty, you know, amongst ourselves, but then also for our students, I think, to really, our female students specifically, to really see, wow, there's all these, you know, different female faculty members, you know, that it's not just the one female engineering faculty member, you know, that uh, basically stands for all female engineers, right? That that they're able to see in our mechanical engineering department, we actually have almost fifty percent of female faculty uh, in engineering, and so that's uh, you know an outstanding, amazing number compared nationally, where nationally the number of females in engineering, uh, you know, in academia is around twelve percent. So. It's it's a really great thing. We're hoping that, you know, uh through our outreach efforts and things like that that again we can get more women interested in engineering and kind of, you know, not leaking out of that pipeline as I was mentioning.
0: All right. Well, great stuff. Uh good luck to you Dr. Br- Brittany Nelson Cheesman from the University of St. Thomas. Certainly appreciate your input tonight.
2: Yeah, thanks so much.
0: All right, folks, much more ahead here on News Radio 830 WCCO. Coming up in our next hour, we do have to take a couple of breaks, give you some weather. We're going to chat with Jane Kirtley, the director of the Scylla Center for the Study of Media Ethics and Law at the School of Journalism and Mass Communications at the U of M. Um, I want to talk to her about this mess with Megan Kelly, who I am a fan of. I think she does a very good job. She's got the new show on NBC. But why, of all people, very early on in the show, she's only had a few shows why would she choose, especially on Father's Day of all days, to interview this Alex Jones who uh, is a naysayer uh, and say basically says that the uh, the horrific uh, massacre at Sandy Hook was not what it seems. Anyway, apparently he's – Alex Jones has taped her. It's just a disaster. Uh, so anyway, let's take a quick break. We got much more ahead. And then of course 8 o'clock, David Schultz and oh my goodness – So much to talk there, talk to uh, with him tonight uh, as always. So keep it right here. You'll see. Yeah. All right, folks. Esme Murphy with you until nine o'clock. I want to invite you to tune in to WCCO TV Sunday morning, six a.m., ten thirty a.m. I hope it is a little calmer than last week. Uh, You know, there has been a lot going on in the news. (laughs) It it has really been uh, an overwhelming week, and and you know I've even had some days off, so I've been lucky in that sense. But uh, last Sunday morning, uh, I got to say, my friend Mike Gustinak just did an amazing job with all of the storms that went through here. Uh, But that kind of broke on Sunday morning, so (laughs) we were ready, though. Uh, That was crazy. It was really so busy, and um, I know a lot of people suffered some damage. Our power was out for a couple of days. I know I whined about it on Twitter, but... um, I've I've been seeing, you know, carts trucking off, you know, tree branches and limbs and all of this kind of stuff. So uh, we are ready there on Sunday morning, uh, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. and uh, 10.30. We've got a couple of uh, live guests. Joe Tamarina will join us to talk about the latest on the Yanez and also the Cosby case and also uh, Congressman Keith Ellison uh, to talk about an awful lot. Obviously, uh, the situation with the shooting at the congressional baseball practice. Uh, Steve Scalise, was, it was great to hear actually uh, from CBS News at the top of the hour that he is doing better and is now in serious condition, which is great news. But we'll talk to him about that, also about uh, the situation with these protests involving Philando Castile, uh, also Congressman Ellison uh, talking about a summer of resistance, uh, calling for protests against the Trump administration. A lot going on here in the news. So just to want to invite you to tune into WCCO-TV Sunday morning. All right, folks. We are going to take a break. We're going to give you some weather. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about this kind of mess that Megan Kelly finds herself in. If, if anybody who's making $17 million a year can find themselves in a mess. But she is in a mess. It's one of her first big interviews. Uh, She's talking about Sandy Hook, and she's chosen to interview Alex Jones, who is a – basically somebody who does not believe in the standard interpretation of what happened in that horrific massacre. And she's doing it on Father's Day, uh, none other than Father's Day. So we're going to talk with uh, Jane Kirtley about that because um, a lot of questions there that I have about that and like to get her take. All right, folks. uh, Let's take a break. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new
2: podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: 36 in the Twin Cities. Well, tomorrow, of course, is Father's Day, and NBC has chosen uh, to air as part of its new uh, show with Megyn Kelly, one that's a uh, show that's up opposite 60 Minutes. An interview uh, that Megyn Kelly is doing with Alex Jones, who is a a multi-conspiracy theorist, amongst uh, the uh, issues and events that he believes are are a hoax, uh, is the shooting at Sandy Hook, which uh, five years ago left 20 children dead as well as six adults. And there has been enormous pushback Uh, The NBC affiliate, which actually is an NBC-owned affiliate, and this is a pretty rare move here, the NBC-owned affiliate in Connecticut will actually not be airing that broadcast, that interview tomorrow night with Alex Jones because of the deep-seated feelings and concerns it has raised within the community. Uh, Also, Alex Jones making news of his own. He actually, in this, has taped Megyn Kelly in the moments sort of that she was not actually videotaping him so he got sort of the set up to the interviews and you know stuff after the interviews Uh, and nothing, no smoking gun here, but obviously stuff that's just not exactly flattering in the light of this amazing controversy. Uh, Want to visit here with Jane Kirtley, as I often do. She is the director of the Silla Center for the Study of Media Ethics and the Law at the School of Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Minnesota. Thank you so much for coming on and your thoughts about what seems to me to be a total mess.
1: Thanks, Esme. Yeah, I agree. I think it is a total mess, and I think it's a mess that didn't have to happen. Um, I think that there is a long and honorable tradition of journalists taking on controversial figures, um, putting them on television or on the radio, and giving them enough rope to hang themselves. And I think that's a great thing. Edward R. Murrow and Joseph McCarthy are two that immediately occur to me. The problem is that it appears that in this case, Megyn Kelly, perhaps—and I say perhaps because we won't know till the interview airs—does um, not seem to have t- subjected Alex Jones to that degree of scrutiny, and to give him a platform, I think, is rightly what the folks uh, in Connecticut are objecting to.
0: Right, and I, you know, I guess, you know, you talk about controversial figures, and and I get it that that you want to put somebody uh, who's controversial on, okay. David Duke, a KKK leader, as offensive as he is, he does seem to have, you know, support and influences people. I can see that, but this is somebody who, who says that, that what what has been, I think, proven beyond any doubt is that this massacre of, of 20 first graders and, and six, you know, brave adults that, at this school that tried to defend them, that, that that wasn't true. And that just doesn't seem like somebody who is worthy of a primetime interview.
1: (laughs) Well, except that. Bear in mind that uh, Alex Jones now has a White House press pass. He appears to have a pretty strong conduit to the Trump administration. He's not just a crazy guy who's off on the fringe talking to a few people that are as crazy as he is. Like it or not, he has influence, and he is influential. And I think that that means, at least in my book, that he needs to be exposed for what he is. So, for me, the critical question is, is that going to happen? And as I understand it, and I'm sure you've heard this too, it now appears that NBC is doing more with this than just having a one-on-one with Megan Kelly. They're going to have some commentary from people from Connecticut. They're going to be doing some background research on um, Alex Jones and, and revealing some more details about him and his achievements. And this inconsistent position he's been taking for a long time, which is sometimes he calls himself a journalist and other times he says, oh, I just make up this stuff to be provocative. And I think, you know, again, handled correctly, this could be a really good way to unmask him as the fraud that I believe he is.
0: So so you're saying as far as you're concerned, it really depends on how... What, what, what ends up on the air? It, it seems to me, though, that some of this additional work that's being done w- w- is an add-on. It
1: is, and I think it has been added on in relatively short order when they got all the pushback that they hadn't anticipated. I, you know, To me, this is reflective of the fact that, just like the interview with Putin, I don't think they thought through what the ramifications of this were. If you use someone who's a master manipulator and give them an open microphone, they're going to use it. So you have to be smart. You have to be prepared um, in the way somebody like Tim Russert used to be, for example, and I'm I'm not sure that Megan Kelly has the chops to do that. I hope she does, but I guess we'll have to wait and see.
0: All right. Um, in terms of, um, I, I guess, you know, what I think is galling to, to some people in Connecticut and certainly understandable is, is that this is all happening on Father's Day. Which seems, yes, and I, uh, the, callous. Timing
1: is, the timing is really unfortunate, and I, I, you know, whether it was done deliberately or thoughtlessly, it was a really bad calculation, I think, on NBC's part. Again, I think there's a legitimate story to be told here. Not everybody is really familiar with Alex Jones and Infowars, and I think to some extent showing him to the public to see what kind of stuff he deals in, what kind of fake news and misinformation he peddles, and how many gullible people buy it, that's an important story to tell. So I'm not disputing that. I'm talking about timing and at least the way they originally intended to do it without anything to really balance it.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think that there's still, and there certainly has been for years, this effort by all the networks, you know, to to try and create, you know, sort of a star aura around certain people. And I'm not sure that that can be created. I think it happens sort of naturally or organically. Uh, I, I I agree. I don't think you know you.
1: And maybe in rare cases, it's possible to just conjure somebody out of thin air. But when you think about the history of really great journalism, whether it's broadcast or print or whatever, the history of those people is lots of hard work, lots of shoe leather reporting, lots of experience. You know, they, But I think the trouble is, and I was thinking about it as I was watching cable news this evening, that the cult of personality, the cult of appearance is something that all of the networks and all the cable networks have been guilty of. And I think the public is getting a little fed up with it, quite honestly. And, and I I mean, I think that's, that's right. I'd rather have substance than... Uh, Right.
0: Well, and certainly in her former network, you've had the fall from grace and actually the stripping of on-air positions from some major stars, including, you know, Fox News's biggest, Bill O'Reilly. I mean, that certainly is something that that could not have been foreseen even a number of months ago.
1: Well, Fox is such a bizarre phenomenon when you think about it, how it, it really began as just kind of an alternative network and gradually morphed into this sort of the voice of the of the right-wing conservatism. You know, I, I guess they've gotten away from their old motto of fair and balance. I think, I think they've
0: taken it away
1: yeah so they're now using something else and i can't recall exactly what it is but the point is they've certainly evolved over the years and with the departure of roger Ailes, i think you know we're going to see a reinvention of fox but exactly in what form i don't know but certainly they perfected if they didn't invent the phenomenon of you know the the very attractive female interviewers anchors and so forth and, again, not always a lot of substance there. Megan Kelly, of course, presented an interesting conundrum because she took on Donald Trump. She became kind of a figure, an anti-Fox person in a sense. But is that enough to make her somebody that can succeed at a conventional network? I, you know, I don't know. We'll have to see.
0: All right. Chatting here with uh, Professor Jane Kirtley of the Scylla Center at the University of Minnesota. You know, there was a lot of attention uh, after this horrific shooting at the baseball practice, uh, the congressional Republican ba- baseball practice, uh, that left uh, four people wounded, including uh, you know a top uh, congressman from Louisiana, Steve Scalise, that in some ways this should have been anticipated. Uh, and there was a great deal of hang- hand-wringing, I think, for- on both sides, both conservative and, and, and liberals, saying uh, the rhetoric has gotten out of hand and the way things have been covered has gotten out of hand and this all should have been anticipated. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think what we see is that everybody uh, becomes a big champion of the First Amendment when it supports their position, but when it becomes, when there are consequences of First Amendment freedom, then everybody kind of goes scuttling away like rats and trying to disavow it. And I think you you can't have it both ways. I mean, the First Amendment as language is unequivocal. It doesn't say, uh, but if this is going to be watched by someone who's mentally unhinged and they go and do something horrible. that means the First Amendment is rescinded. That's not, obviously, the way that it works. But I think it's sometimes tough for people to live with what the consequences of the First Amendment are. They throw it around as if it's nothing. It's not nothing. It's tremendously important. It's critical to the way our democracy or our republic function. Um, I don't take the position that news, information, commentary can make anybody do anything. Every individual is responsible for the choices they make and if they engage in violence acts, they're the ones that are responsible. But there's no question that the rhetoric level that has ratcheted up, not only in the media, in terms of the commercial media, but online, on blogs, in chat rooms, every place else, is, and it's been enabled by the Internet and by the anonymity of the Internet. This is a, a, a disturbing time, and I think it tests all of our commitment to what the First Amendment is all about. And for me, what that's about is not... Uh, curtailing dangerous speech, if we want to use that term, but making sure that we're balancing it with truthful, thoughtful speech. And that sometimes gets drowned out in all of this.
0: Right. And you mentioned sort of the online comments that I, I, I no longer read because it's it's too hard to. Uh, but, but, you know, some of those comments really, um, I, I think, suggest the anger that's out there. And, and just... Um, it's disturbing i
1: well, think well it is it's profoundly disturbing, and and you know, like you, on, on many mornings when I start out looking at comments, I sort of have to stop halfway through because I, I can't quite bear to think that people are that angry and that unhappy, and that divided. You know, it's not enough to disagree with someone; you have to vilify this person, you have to declare that they're evil, that they're stupid, that they're immoral. I mean, you, you can't just reasonably disagree, and that you know is the kind of the dark side of the internet that it's allowed that kind of. Uh, Thought or emotion to really uh, flourish. It's, it's it's a it's a dangerous time. It really
0: is. Well, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I want to ask you very quickly about a, another case because I know that you have the the, the legal background as well. Um, very, um, you know, r- remarkable case um, involving the guilty verdict of a young woman who texted her boyfriend uh, encouraging to commit suicide. Obviously horrific situation here but she was actually convicted on the basis of these texts what was your take on that
1: well it's a very interesting question because there are states that have laws that would give a specific uh, you know cause of action for her uh, Massachusetts is not one of them um, I am sure that there will be a constitutional challenge to what has happened to her here it is certainly true that speech that is in 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 it, you're trying to incite someone to commit a violent act that would harm others or harm themselves is not protected by the First Amendment. The question, I think, is what exactly does this odd relationship that she had with this uh, individual, the timing of the text and so forth, I mean, it sounds very technical. I've seen, we were talking about comments, I've seen comments online where people are just so disgusted by what she did that they just, you know, want her to be taken away and, and, and jailed for the rest of her life. But I think we. Have to kind of think about what the impact of this sort of thing would be. Again, it goes back to what you were talking about before. If vulnerable people hear disturbing things and take bad actions, whether it's to harm somebody else or themselves, is the speaker the one that's going to be responsible? And generally, under the First Amendment, the speaker is not responsible unless it's something that would uh, be directly affected to to ex- expected to to cause immediate irreparable harm to somebody or. Something.
0: Right. And that's what, you know, a, a number of First Amendment scholars have agreed with just just what you just said right there. So it'll be interesting to see what that. I mean, it'll almost certainly be appealed. Well, listen, uh, Jane Kirtley from the SILA Center, thank you so much, as always, for joining us this evening. It was a
1: pleasure, Esme. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. All right. Jane Kirtley there from the SILA Center. Uh, she's the director of the SILA Center of the Study of Media Ethics and Law at the School of Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Minnesota. And that interview with uh Megan Kelly and Alex Jones supposed to air tomorrow night. It'll be very interesting to see. I, I I certainly the timing I think is is appalling. And I guess, you know, I think Professor Curtley does have a point. If this is put in a way that, that sheds a light on what Alex Jones is doing, what he is putting out there, I suppose that, you know, is something that, that could be compelling. I think just to do the interview though, uh is something that I think a lot of people are going to take issue with, especially on Father's Day. Uh, especially uh, somebody who does believes that the Sandy Hook massacre was in fact a hoax. All right, folks, we are going to take a quick break. Much more ahead. You are listening to News Radio eight three zero WCCO. It is seven fifty four in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy, along with Jonathan Lowe and Kevin Reed, our studio coordinators, just chatting in the break there. Uh, Kevin was obviously keeping you updated uh, throughout the evening because that thing went late, late, late into the evening where the uh, protesters were on in Interstate 94 shutting down the interstate. Protesters upset about the acquittal of Officer Yanez, Geronimo Yanez, in the shooting death of Philando Castile. A very, very dangerous situation. I you know, I tweeted that, uh, you know, my colleague Jennifer Mayerly, who did a great job, one of the you know, reporters at our station that really did a terrific job yesterday, including, uh, obviously, Red Chapman and Bill Hudson. Uh, I tweeted that, you know, uh, Jen would have an update on her 8 o'clock show this morning on the crisis over the Interstate 94. A lot of people took issue with my using the word crisis to describe what was going on on the interstate. and uh, You know, arguably, you could have used a different word, but in my view, it... it, it It is a crisis when you've got a major interstate shutdown and you've got uh, people on the interstate. You have police officers there, state troopers there. Uh, The last time this happened, uh, back a year ago when they were protesting over Philando Castile, there were more than 20 police officers who were injured and state troopers who were injured. uh, Some of them had to go to the hospital because they were hit with rebar that was being thrown by the protesters. Uh, More than 100 protesters were arrested. I think this time there were 18 protesters arrested. But it's a serious situation. Now, there was another protest here at 5 o'clock in Loring Park, uh, and there were hundreds of people there. And I think no one's arguing with these protesters to have the right to protest. But at some point, you know, one of these protesters is going to get badly, badly injured. And again, an officer could be badly injured or – a motorist who, who tries to swerve to avoid them. So, hopefully, uh, if the protests cont- continue, we understand that people are upset. Hopefully, they will be peaceful and no one will be hurt. All right, folks, David Schultz is next. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal. So, why not refresh your home with a little help from
2: blinds.com?